Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. ever asked yourself why humans have an appendix that will sometimes explode and kill us? Why do men's testicles hang outside the body, where they're arguably awkward and vulnerable? And if there is an intelligent designer, who does it like better anyway? Us or squid? These and other related questions are addressed in the book, The Not-So-Intelligent Designer, Why Evolution Explains the Human Body and Intelligent Design Does Not in which Dr. Abby Hafer argues that the human body has many faulty design features that would never have been the choice of an intelligent creator. She also points out that there are other animals that got better body parts, which makes the designer look a bit strange. She discusses the history and politics of intelligent design and creationism, reveals animals that shouldn't exist according to intelligent design, and disposes of the idea of irreducible complexity. If you have a chance to get a copy of her book, you'll find that her points are illustrated with pictures, wit, and erudition. Dr. Hafer has a doctorate in zoology from Oxford University and teaches human anatomy and physiology at Curry College. She's also a member of the Humanist Society and a contributor to the Humanist Magazine and the American Humanist Association. Her work debunking intelligent design and creationism includes frequent humorous public lectures, and she's been interviewed on NPR WBAI, and other radio outlets and television shows. She joins us today to be interviewed by New Books in Secularism. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Dr. Abby Hafer to talk about her book, The Not-So-Intelligent Designer. Abby, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, are you asking how I came to work in biology or how I came to work in debunking intelligent design? Uh, Both would be fine. Okay. Well, with biology, uh, I can say honestly that I was always interested in it. And I started majoring in it in college and then had the very good luck to get several jobs in the field while I was still an undergraduate. And that cemented my desire to work in biology, but it also made me realize that I probably wanted to do it uh, at a more advanced level than being a technician. And meanwhile, at uh, the same time, I was still, I have, I've always loved literature and I was also entertaining the idea of being an English major. Uh, So I kind of kept that up as a double major for a while, but in the end, Um, I really had to choose, and I chose biology with the idea that I could always um, be a writer, even as a biology major, but I could not be a biologist if I were an English major. So, so as I said, I uh, wound up getting an undergraduate degree in biology, and then after that, really, you know, 
decided to pursue it at an advanced level and wound up getting a DPhil, as it's known in Oxford, in zoology uh, at Oxford University, where, as I said, it was in zoology with a particular um, emphasis on animal behavior. So that was that's sort of how I got my education. But then, interestingly, and running parallel to that, I had found that at almost any time, almost any time, when I was out looking for work, I nearly always got work in physiology. It almost didn't matter what kind of biology I was studying. The work I got was in physiology, which is a wonderful subject. It's basically how uh, the body works, either animal bodies or one could study plant physiology, though I haven't done much of that. Animal bodies, human bodies, this kind of thing. So that was where I always got my work, and that's really how I wound up in the field of physiology. I worked in it continuously. Um, I had a small part in writing a textbook about it, uh, and eventually I wound up teaching it, which brings me to really where I am today in terms of my biology career. Then as to how I got into debunking intelligent design, what happened was that um, when I was an undergraduate, I pretty much assumed, as I think most people did at the time, that creationism, it didn't even really have that name, but sort of, you know, the idea that people didn't believe in evolution was relegated to the far past. The Scopes trials had been in 1925, and we pretty much assumed that that was the end of it, except for perhaps a, a few uh, pockets of not very well-educated people. Uh, and then I went to graduate school in Los Angeles. And I, it was, you know, in the daily paper that there were school boards in and near Los Angeles that were planning on teaching creationism, uh, which, by the way, was called scientific creationism at the time. Uh, they don't like to be reminded of that now. But it was called scientific creationism. And on top of all of that, that was when Ronald Reagan was running for president, um, and he approved of the idea of teaching creationism alongside evolution in biology classes. And this just utterly astounded me that, you know, I was not now in Appalachia. I was in a major metropolitan area where there was plenty of money and plenty of education. And people in some places were voting for teaching creationism in science classes in American public schools. And this just astounded me, but I really didn't have time to do anything about it at the time. I was a graduate student, but I remember just being shocked about it. So then many years later, uh, after I had finished graduate school and come back to this country, and boy, had that problem not gone away. Uh, during the 80s, it morphed itself from being called scientific creationism to being intelligent design, but it was the same stuff. And um, what happened, let's get back to my career now for a moment. I was teaching human anatomy and physiology at Curry College, where I still work. 
And there was one time when I was teaching human reproductive systems, as I do every year, and I had just put the male reproductive system up on the board, and I pointed out that the testicles hang outside the body. Um, now, I should back up for a moment to say that in the meantime, having become reacquainted with creationism and intelligent design, I had realized that it was not a scientific issue. I had kind of always known that, but I hadn't put it into so many words. It is not a scientific issue. It is a political issue. And I've worked on political campaigns, and I have come to understand that political arguments are different. This is constantly a frustration to many people. When you're doing a political argument, it has to be short. It has to be the kind of thing that can fit on a poster. There can be lots of very delicate, nuanced thinking behind it, but you've got to be able to express the, the core ideas very quickly and simply. So a political argument has to be short. It has to be easy to understand. It has to be easy to repeat. And I kind of gave myself the thought project of trying to figure out even what a political style argument for evolution would even look like. So I just kind of had that in the back of my mind. And there I was in my classroom talking about the male reproductive system. And I had just drawn it, and I was talking about the testicles and how they hang outside the body. And this, of course, makes them rather vulnerable. And so I asked my students if any of them knew why they hang outside the body. And there's usually somebody who does. And sure enough, somebody did. And the answer is because the testes have to be at a slightly cooler temperature than the rest of the body if they're going to produce sperm. So somebody knew that answer, and I turned around to write it on the board. And as I was writing it on the board, I thought to myself, that's really stupid. And at that point, alarms went off in my head. I knew I had my first best argument against intelligent design in the human body because once I started talking about men's testicles, people would pay attention. Um, so at that point, I, I knew I had it. I had a way in. I had a way of talking about this in a political style where I could make short arguments that people would relate to. And as I said, testicles are a great place to start. So that was really where I got started, and I ran it past friends, and I gave a workshop about it, and I kind of honed things. And at Curry College, where I work, they have these wonderful dinners called Excellence in Teaching Dinners, where people can make presentations about what they're doing at, you know, scholastically. And um, so I put together this um, PowerPoint presentation slash comedy routine um, about called unintelligent design. And keeping with the idea that political arguments must be short, I said, let's keep this whole thing to under a half an hour. Let's not use all the bad body parts. Let's just pick five. Um, and so I had sort of my list of five 
badly designed body parts and made it into a comedy routine and gave that at the Excellence in Teaching dinner. And people really liked it. And that's really how things got underway. Oh, that's fantastic. That's such a fun story. Um, I, I Myself, I had a knee injury um, good 15 years ago. And in my frustration with my badly designed body, I learned at that time that, yeah, the knee from an engineering pr- perspective is just really poorly designed. And I, I couldn't help but think of the same thing because I grew up in a Christian family. And so I'd heard some of those intelligent design arguments as well. And um, yeah, just look around. It just doesn't really uh, add up. So, <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Knees, backs, all kinds of things. There really are many, many parts to choose from. You know, that's why, you know, it's a little bit tough picking the top five. Um, but as I said, for the sake of making an argument, you know, doing a speech that would land where you could say it before people went to sleep. Um, as I said, I just kind of limited it to five. Um, I talk about 10 in my book, but it was five in that original talk. And I kind of want to save those sure. uh, for the end sure. because they are really fun. So I thought we could work through um, the heavier uh, argumentation for against what kind of things we're dealing with. But and we'll save the fun stuff for uh, for towards the end. But uh, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how this book came to be in existence? Well, um, as I said, I started out by giving this talk that had five badly designed body parts in it. And um, that went really well. I had guessed correctly that there is a hunger for this kind of information. Um, most people are not biologists and they shouldn't be expected to be biologists, but many people want to defend evolution and protect science education, but they don't know how. And so what I'm trying to do is give them things they can talk about so that if their school board is is considering it, they have a few quick arguments they can use, or if they're talking to their legislator, they can use one or two quick arguments. So as I said, I was giving this talk. It was very popular, and essentially people were saying, you should write a book. And... um As time went on, I accumulated more arguments and more ideas, and there was a lot of knowledge that I had accumulated about the politics of intelligent design. And eventually, I got the idea that um, there was more than enough material for a book, but I still wanted to keep it short and readable. Um, so that was pretty much what I set out to do was to cover the political history of intelligent design and simultaneously give a whole bunch of good arguments against it, explain what denialism is in general, because it's a strategy. It's not just something that people kind of come up with off the bat, um, And, you know, but at the same time, get all of this into a relatively short book that's, you know, easy and fun to read. So that was kind of the project that I gave myself. And um, it, well, it turned into a project that was pretty difficult to do. The writing part of it was a lot of fun. It took a while to kind of corral the information into chapters and figure out how to organize them. But 
I wanted lots of pictures um, because, well, because I give slide presentations, because pictures are fun, because they can explain so much so quickly and easily. Um, and it wound up taking a lot of time to get the photographs that I got and to get the drawings that I got. So it wound up being a big project, but I hope it resulted in a book that's, well, fun to read. Excellent. No, I had fun reading it. Um, we uh, we talked touched a little bit about um, your explanation that intelligent design, the controversy is really more of a political issue than it is a scientific one. Um, Oh, yeah. Was, did you have more to add to that explanation? Well, it's pretty straightforward, really. Um, you know, if you look at sort of 90, you know, I'm let's say 99% of all biologists and 97% of all scientists basically agree that evolution by natural selection is what has led to all the species that we have on Earth today. Um and so scientists are by and large agreed on this. And by the way, you know, we have libraries full of evidence for evolution. You can do, you can make predictions based on evolutionary theory. You can do experiments. It's been tested. It's been looked at. It has been very, very rigorously vetted for over 150 years. Um, so it really is not an argument um, as far as scientists are concerned. But because there are people in the religious community and in the political community who don't want to accept it, they have invented these other things that they say are equally valid and therefore say that it is a controversy. Um, you can think of it as being like a more political version of the flat earth argument. Um, there has been a flat earth society for a long time because of social media. Apparently it's actually gaining a little bit of traction right now. But the, but the point is that um, you can invent a controversy really, really easily. All you have to do is say, I believe something different and get on social media and say you believe something different and you have created a controversy. Um, in the case of creationism and intelligent design, it is entirely politically and religiously motivated. There is no argument among scientists as to whether or not uh, evolution by natural selection has produced the biological world that we have today. It's really not a scientific controversy, but because there are a lot of rich and influential people who don't want to accept it, it is a political controversy. So that's what's going on. Yeah. Uh, next in the book, uh, you jump right to your testicles example to demonstrate why that works so well to illustrate your point by comparing to the reproductive systems of other animals. Can you tell us a little more about that? Okay. Well, now, I mean, from the standpoint of a political argument, um, the testes are a great argument because, as I said, once I start talking about men's testicles, people pay attention. 
and it works every time. And people relate to their bodies in ways that they cannot relate to, say, the fossil record or something like that. So it is a good argument from a political standpoint in that respect. Um, and also, all men have had the experience of feeling vulnerable where their testes are concerned. And most women have had the experience of knowing men who have been concerned about their vulnerable testicles. So it works from that angle as well. Now, in terms of the science of the whole thing, lots of animals have internal testicles. So we start with things like frogs and other amphibia. They all have their testes inside the body. Some people dissect frogs in high school or in college, and everybody finds the testes on the inside instead of on the outside. So the point is, internal testes are possible. Why didn't we get them? And then on top of that, some people will say, well, but, you know, cold-blooded animals, when when we started having sort of self-maintained internal body temperature or warm body temperature, um, the testes had come out. Now, I mean, there's some obvious things along the lines of you'd think that the creator of the universe could manage to make sperm production and normal body temperature compatible. It doesn't seem like that tough of a thing to do. But on top of that, there are other warm-blooded animals who have internal testes. There are lots of them. There are great, big, formidable mammals like elephants and rhinoceroses who have internal testicles. So, you know, you have to kind of wonder why vulnerable human males got external testes and the great, big, strong mammals wound up having internal testes. All marine mammals have internal testes. Um, and all birds, all birds have internal testes and Birds actually have a higher body temperature than we are, than we have. So you can also ask, you know, if somebody was made in God's image and the birds got the good things, then maybe God is a turkey. I mean, there are all kinds of ways this can go. There's also uh, animals like uh, mice that have what I call convertibles. That is to say, when they want to breed, they can pull their testes out, and sperm is made fresh on a routine basis. So if they want to breed, the testes come out, they breed. When they want to protect their testes, they just pop them back in again. And so they get both safety uh, and control of fertility. And this is something that many human men I know would kill for. Um, and, you know, and, and we didn't get that. So from the scientific standpoint, um, it is a great argument for evolution by natural selection because the standards for evolution are much lower. The standards for intelligent design is basically designed by an infallible creator. On the other hand, the standard for evolution, and this is important, is adequate enough to not cause death before reproduction too much of the time. That's not a very high standard. All that a species has to do is breed more than it dies. And so basically, it doesn't matter if it is suboptimal. It doesn't matter even if it's lethal sometimes, so long as you breed before it kills you. 
And, you know, that's a very different kind of a standard from God sat there with a big whiteboard and an engineering team and gave us the best stuff possible. Yeah, that's excellent. All right. Next, you devote some space in your book to examining the wide range of forms that intelligent design arguments take, because as you point out, there's many of them. Uh, To quote you, you say there's a wide diversity of opinions, but one agenda. So I was wondering if you could explain some of those to us, as well as their connection to creationism and religion. Okay. Well, there's a whole bunch of them. Now, as I said, there are some who claim that it is not religion, and they claim that it is different from creationism. So Dr. William Dembski, as I said, insists that intelligent design is not religion. He says that creationism is religion, uh, though at the same time that he says this, and, and I actually have quotes from a book that he wrote about this, um, he then also quotes the Bible on the very next page. So I'll read a little bit of this to you. Dembski says, Intelligent design, by contrast to creationism, places no such requirement on any designing intelligence responsible for cosmological fine-tuning or biological complexity. You can see he likes using big words. Um, It simply argues that certain finite material objects exhibit patterns that convincingly point to an intelligent cause. But... He says, the nature of that cause, whether it is one or many, whether it is part of or separate from the world, even whether it is good or evil, simply does not fall within intelligent design's purview. What he's saying there is, well, we're trying to point out an intelligent cause, but we're not going to say if it's God or not. That's the translation there. But then in the same book, he says it is not It is no accident that the first thing the Bible teaches is creation. Creation implies purpose. Because we are created, there is a purpose for our existence, for family, for work, for sex, and for how we ought to live. Creation by a loving God is our, and this is in in italics, is our origin. So he kind of wants to have it both ways at the same time. Um. There are others that claim that it is science, though they arrive at this through prayer. Um, then there is another one named Paul Nelson, who is, in fact, a young earth creationist. Now, the young earth creationists um, are in a very different sort of belief space, or so they say. These are the ones who believe that the earth is no more than 10,000 years old. In fact, they usually say it's about 6,000 years old. This is based by trying to add up the generations of begats in the Bible and coming up with 6,000. Though, he says, he's not quite sure what he means by young when he says he's a young earth creationism, when he says he's a young earth creationist. So to quote him, he says, we hold the view of recent or so-called young earth creation. Unfortunately, neither, quote, young earth, unquote, nor, quote, recent, unquote, is satisfactory as a descriptive adjective. So he's kind of admitting that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um... And he then says, natural science at the moment seems to overwhelmingly point to an old cosmos. 
Though creationist scientists have suggested some evidence for a recent cosmos, none are widely accepted as true. It is safe to say that most recent creationists are motivated by religious concerns. So here's a guy admitting that this really does have to do with religion. And then there is Michael Behe, who actually is a scientist. He's a biochemist. And he, on the other hand, accepts the idea of common descent among organisms. Um, so he says that, quote, I have no quarrel with the idea of common descent and continue to think that it explains similarities among species. And he accepts that the universe is billions of years old. And he accepts that humans and chimpanzees share a common ancestor. Now, common ancestry is central to evolution by natural selection. And common ancestry is how you can start with one species and wind up with many species radiating out from it. Um, but he still claims to believe in intelligent design and to reject evolution by natural selection. So you have, as I said, Behe, who says it's an old cosmos, and he says that there is common descent, and he says that humans and chimpanzees share a common ancestor. There's Paul Nelson, who says that it's a young Earth. Um, and that there's no common descent. And there's William Dembski, who talks about creation. Um, and they all claim to be supporting intelligent design, um, but they can't even agree on what it is that they support. Um, they can't even agree on whether the uh, cosmos is, you know, a few thousand years old or billions of years old. So they really can't agree on anything. Um, you know, these guys would have a hard time agreeing that gravity makes things fall down. Um, and yet they claim that they know so much that they can insist that evolution has been refuted, although they can't say by what, but that evolution has been refuted and that therefore this other thing, whatever this other thing is that they support, that this has to be taught instead of or at least in tandem with the scientifically valid theory of evolution by natural selection. So, you know, these guys are weird. <laughs> okay, great. Um, that's a good summary. Thank you. Uh, in the next part of the book, you move on to talk about the, the damage that trying to uh, insert that kind of teaching in schools in particular can do, um, like ideas of teaching the controversy um, or the idea that there's knowledge gaps in the theory of evolution, suggesting that it's thrown into question. So can you maybe more, go more into that as well? Well, before I get into that, you were talking about damage. I'm going to start with damage, and then I will address specifically teaching the controversy and knowledge gaps and things like this. Because this is becoming something that I, is becoming more important to me or that I'm seeing the importance behind it. Um, I have spoken to some people who say, well, what's the damage in teaching the controversy? What's the damage in having these things taught side by side? What's the damage even of just teaching creationism? You know, when people get to college, they'll get straightened out, all of this kind of thing. And there's a lot of damage that is done. To begin with, um, 
it is becoming to me more actually of an issue of equality, equality of opportunity. Because if you have some poor kid in the state of Tennessee or Louisiana where they can teach creationism, Let's say that this this kid comes from, you know, an impoverished family. They go to the local public school. The teacher teaches them creationism instead of real science. And they want to go on and become a nurse. So they go to community college and they have to take biology classes because that's what you have to do to become a nurse. And suddenly they are put in a classroom where they are having new knowledge thrown at them at the speed that you get it in college. And kids in their first college biology course have a hard time, even if they went to a good high school. And so suddenly, they not only have to teach all this new stuff that's being thrown at them, but they have to unlearn the stuff that they learned before that was wrong. They have to learn the stuff they should have learned in high school but didn't while simultaneously keeping up with a college course. And I can tell you, having taught community college myself, it isn't going to happen. So you are cutting a whole lot of deserving people out of things that they could do to support themselves and support their families because somebody, some religious politician somewhere will feel better about him or herself if they insist that teachers can teach creationism instead and allow teachers to feel better about themselves because they're supporting their religious values instead of teaching science the way they should. They are blocking children from opportunities. And this, I think, is absolutely unacceptable. So I really do think that it's actually a human rights issue. Um, and uh, that's a really nice, punchy, political, easy to understand kind of concept as well, to go back to the importance of framing things in a way that are easy to yes. understand politically speaking. Yes. And so, in fact, yeah. I was I was very talking good to a a civil rights leader uh, not long ago, and he has the a, a very similar opinion about algebra about basically making sure that kids um, are numerate can actually do mathematics because again that's something that allows them to be able to go on in education and succeed, not just academically, but therefore succeed in terms of being able to get a job. Um, and so it was interesting. We were very much on the same wavelength about that, which was interesting to me. But getting back to what you were saying about um, the business of teaching the controversy, well, I have just explained why teaching the controversy is a bad idea. Um, in terms of the the gaps argument, which generally goes that there are some things that science hasn't explained, and therefore that's evidence for God, or if it's evidence for creationism or intelligent design, the first thing you need to know about that is the fact that there is something that science has not yet explained is what makes scientists get up in the morning. Because we love those unanswered questions. That's what research is about. Uh, 
you know, it, if we knew everything, there would be no point to being a scientist. And of course, that is what the religious people want. But leaving that aside, the fact that there are gaps in our knowledge means nothing. It means those answers are not known yet. And that's different from being unknowable. And they deliberately confuse those twos, those two. And I'm also going to put a slightly different cast on that, which is that this has happened repeatedly. This is called the God of the gaps argument, where there is something that science doesn't explain and religious types will say, see, this is where God is. But then science explains that. And so then there is some smaller piece that is unexplained and religious types will say, well, but science can't explain this. And then science explains that. And it keeps going and that gap keeps moving. And this is called the God of the gaps. But on top of that, that's a really pathetic kind of a God. If the only thing God can do is explain these eensy weensy little things, it's really not much of a God to worship anyway. So, you know, the whole business of God being all powerful and almighty, but on the other hand, only in charge of these increasingly tiny uh, bits of the world until the next scientific breakthrough comes along is really a pretty pathetic kind of a God to have anyway. I would agree. Um, you also refute some other arguments along the lines of uh, uh, the defense for academic freedom. Uh, as well as critical thinking in the classroom, as if uh, including intelligent design would somehow bolster academic freedom and critical thinking. Um, can you say some more about that? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Let's talk about academic freedom first. Now, I'm going to actually give you a little bit of a clue as to the overall strategy of denialism, which is also used against climate change, by the way. Um, but very often one part of the strategy is when in doubt, talk about freedom, whatever the subject is, change the subject and talk about freedom. They'll do it every time. Watch for it. This is a clue as to how they're operating. So in this case, they bring in the word freedom and they talk about academic freedom. Now, here's the thing. Academic freedom is what allows some college professors to do research in controversial subjects and be able to publish that research and not get fired. So it's a useful kind of a freedom to have. Um, it's kind of like freedom of speech in a way. You can say something political and not worry about the police knocking on your door at midnight and dragging you off to jail for it. It's a very good thing. But that is what college professors have that allows them to do their research and to teach uh, controversial subjects, you know, different economic ideas or this kind of thing. But high school student or high school teachers and elementary school teachers have never had academic freedom. Never. It's not, they, they do not have control over what they teach in class. This is why there is so much fussing over textbooks and so much fussing over curricula and the like. Because teachers are given these curricula and these are what they are supposed to follow. They are told what textbook is going to be used. Um, 
And so this, they, the intelligent design folks are sort of claiming a freedom for high school teachers and elementary school teachers that they have never had. So, and um, so then you're also talking about critical thinking, which is something that is an important thing to try and uh, promote in education. And it is a case where they kind of are using the words of a very good idea, uh, but then essentially ignoring the meaning of the words. So critical thinking means looking at the best evidence um, and using that and learning how to do this and make up your own mind and things like this, which is a great thing to be able to do. But on the other hand, remember what I said about learning science that it is hard and there's a lot of stuff that you need to master and you need to learn how science is done, but that does not mean that you should be taught religion in a science class. That is not critical thinking. That's just being taught religion in a science class. Um, you should, in a science class, you should be learning how science works and what critical thinking looks like in a science class, which has to do with looking at the evidence and looking at what predictions have been made and how they have been tested and what conclusions you can draw from those tests and the like. Um, so that is a very, very different thing. Um, so let me see. You were asking about academic freedom and critical thinking. Were there other things that you were interested in? I think uh, for that question, that was it, just because you're right. They throw around those words a lot, academic freedom and critical thinking, which sound like just blatantly good things, no matter the context. But as you point out, there's a place for it. Um, you, wouldn't want a, you wouldn't want a high school student asserting that the flat earth theory was their academic freedom to think <laughs> critically about, for example. So, so honest, no, I... I have often thought that, you know, if you wanted to look at things that way, then I could have simply claimed that the really bad French grammar that I did in high school because I was not learning very well, that that was equally valid as valid a form of French grammar as the stuff that those French people used. Um, and that really would not have been an appropriate use of critical thinking. It would have meant that I got A's in French instead of C's, but, you know, so it would have been nice for me, but it would not have really uh, gotten me to learn French better. Well, it creates this atmosphere of total relativism where, where you're not really learning anymore. So, so that, that kind of brings me to my next question, which had to do with, uh, you mentioned some stumbling blocks that are inherent in uh, intelligent design's own logic. Uh, some of the things that trip them up uh, as they're even trying to formulate their own arguments. Well, there, there are a lot of fun things like that. I mean, one that has been around really since, at least since Darwin's time is the whole problem of extinction. You look in the fossil record, and this was known in Darwin's time because they had found fossils and they noticed that there were different sort of whole ecosystems at different layers in the soil. 
So you can see that there were all these animals and plants that had existed at one time, and then they went away, and it was replaced by a different ecosystem, and then by a different ecosystem. So there were all these animals that had gone extinct. So if those animals were intelligently designed, why have they all died out? And where's the evidence for the animals that exist today in those older levels of the fossil record? So, I mean, it really does not stand up at all well in that regard. So um, intelligent design and creationism really cannot handle the problem of extinction, nor can they handle the opposite problem of new organisms, such as new diseases, Um HIV was unknown until we discovered that it causes AIDS in the 1980s. Um, Ebola is a relatively new disease. New diseases crop up all the time. Um, and that's because they evolve. And the uh, creationists and intelligent design folks really have to ask, well, so is God like coming down and doing some more creation? Is it that the creation myth about Adam and Eve and all that isn't quite true? It's not that God came down, did all that creating and then went away, but that in fact, God continues to come back and creates new things from time to time. And if that's the case, would they please tell us his timetable? Because we would be interested in knowing that. So they do not explain new organisms, and that includes new organisms, again, that you can see in the fossil record, including some really basic things like plants with flowers. There was a time in the Carboniferous period when there were no flowers. Then you see flowers coming into being, Um, and they have no explanation for that. They have no explanation for transitional species like uh, Archaeopteryx and other things that are clearly sort of not the, you know, where they are between one particular group and another particular group. And um, the whole idea, in addition, that intelligent design or creationism are anything like theories um, is just laughable. They are not theories. A theory in science is a big, important thing. It explains stuff that didn't used to be explained. It is a great overarching model that pulls together a whole lot of things, and it creates testable predictions. Now, intelligent design and creationism, first of all, have no data base that actually test create that to that test predictions. Um, I looked through all of the papers that were published by the Discovery Institute, which is the primary institutional proponent of intelligent design. I looked at all of them to see if any of them even used the word data. I copied, or I, I noticed, I wrote down every time they used the word data. And then I looked to see if any of those papers actually meant data as in they had made a prediction and tested it, that they had tested a hypothesis. And not once in all of the papers that the Discovery Institute claimed were their scientific research papers did they test a prediction. So they have no data. It is not a theory. It is not even a particularly good idea, much less a theory. Intelligent design and creationism have never tested a prediction. And in fact, their own proponents like 
Dr. Dembski admit that intelligent design cannot make predictions. And this is one of the sort of acid tests of science. In science, it can start out as observations. But at a certain point, you have to start looking for patterns and you have to be willing to climb out onto a limb and make a prediction that can be tested. And this even goes for things like relativity, where, where there were testable predictions, though we could not test them with the technology we had at the time. But the predictions were made. And when we developed the technology, we, cre we then did those tests. So, as I said, you cannot have a theory if it does not make testable predictions and its own proponents admit that you cannot make any kind of prediction based on intelligent design. It's impossible. So it's not a theory. It never has been. They can call it a theory, but that's just bad use of words. <laughs> and you discuss the major problems that are caused by denying science and ignoring what we can learn from evolution, like these predictions. Can you talk about that a little? Well, in terms of denying science, you can make, have all kinds of problems. In fact, I'm going to do a public service announcement right now. If you start a course of antibiotics, take all the antibiotics, all of them, even when you are feeling better. Because, as evolutionary theory predicts and tells you, um, if you have some kind of an infection by death-dealing bacteria and you are given antibiotics, as you take those antibiotics, um, the bacteria in your body will start to, or I should say the, the death-causing bacteria will start to die, and this is a good thing. But in any given population, there is genetic variation. And so there will be some organisms in that population who have a little bit of resistance to that antibiotic just because of genetic variability. It's what makes um, a population even capable of existing in many cases is genetic variability. So you start taking your antibiotics. The bacteria start dying, except for the ones that have a certain level of resistance. They are the ones who... Uh, don't die as quickly. So after a while, that population of bacteria gets very much reduced. You're feeling much better now. So those of us who have not studied evolution might say, well, I don't have to take these drugs anymore. Drugs are bad for you. I'll stop taking these antibiotics now. And when you do that, if you do that, what you have done is that you now have a population of resistant bacteria in your body. So what you have succeeded in doing is killing the weak ones. And you now have these antibiotic-resistant bacteria in your body, that death, the disease-causing bacteria, which will now breed up and you will get sick again. But now your antibiotics won't work. And at that point, you're in kind of a death race. Can you kill those bacteria before they kill you? And the answer might be no. Um, and what's more, because this has been happening over a long time and because antibiotics have been added to animal feed and other bad things like this, we now have whole hosts of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that cause diseases that are now killing people who we used to be able to cure. So... 
If you have some kind of a bacterial infection, take all your antibiotics so that you wipe out the whole population of those bacteria. Um, A, so that you live and are healthy and so on, but also so that you do not bequeath to the world antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Because that's very, very serious, and most people don't actually understand this. And I think that this is in part because in many schools, we really do tippy-toe around teaching evolution by natural selection. And we shouldn't because it has a lot of real-world consequences. That's just sort of one big one, which is kind of obvious. Hmm. You also make a rather damning comparison of the Intelligent Design Act and the Discovery Institute to the tobacco lobby. Excuse me, the tobacco lobby. So can you tell us about that? Okay. Now, it's not an intelligent design act. It's an intelligent design lobby, basically. And um, the primary proponent, as I have said, is the Discovery Institute. Um, But basically, there is a strategy to denialism, which has its it's sort of its its own um, its own playbook, and that playbook was invented by the tobacco lobby. Basically, back when it was found that smoking cigarettes causes cancer, um, the tobacco industry realized that you know it might possibly go out of business, and so they had to. They actually got together. All of these competing tobacco companies actually got together to try and figure out how they could stop this potentially fatal problem. And so they came up with this strategy, which has come to be known as denialism. And it has been used many times since. So in denialism, the first thing that you do is that you manufacture uncertainty. So you just basically say, well, the science is not complete or the evidence isn't compelling. You just call into question other people's work. You use the word controversy when describing scientific results. And so by manufacturing uncertainty, you can say, well, there is not enough research that has been done. We don't really know. Therefore, you don't have to worry about it. Take my word for it. This is how the tobacco lobby succeeded uh, for many decades, actually. Um, But this has also been used by climate denialists who are still saying that there's not enough evidence for climate change, and they have used it on evolution, saying that the evidence for evolution isn't good enough yet, despite 150 years of scientific research and enough evidence for evolution to fill multiple libraries. Um, Another aspect of the denialist strategy is to get some spokespeople with fancy degrees who will say anything so long as you pay them enough. This is why the spokesperson for tobacco or for um, creationism or intelligent design or climate denialism will nearly always have a Ph.D. Some people will say anything if you pay them enough, and it helps if they have some nice degrees. Um, And what it means then is that if they go on TV, it almost sounds like it's a, a, a discussion amongst equals. And related to that is also coming up with an institute. 
as a front for your lobbyists. So the uh, tobacco industry famously came up with the Tobacco Research Institute. And for intelligent design and creationism, there is the Discovery Institute. And for climate change denial, there is the Heartland Institute. You get it. You put the word institute into your lobbying group, and it sounds like, oh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, which is a very respected scientific university. You do that, and that way, it sounds like you're some kind of serious academics who just want to get to the bottom of things, which you're not, but it sounds that way. And as I said, if you go on TV and you have a respected scientist from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and you have somebody from the Discovery Institute, and they both have PhDs, it sounds like it's a discussion among equals, whereas, in fact, it's a discussion between a serious scientist with lots of evidence and a lobbyist who will say anything for money. And this then gets into the whole business of pretending that it's a debate if it's not. Other things that they will always do is repeat things that are untrue even after they have been publicly corrected. doesn't matter how many times you correct them. They will keep saying it. Crucially, appeal to emotion. Portray yourself and your followers as victims. It gets people sympathy. This is, again, why the uh, Tobacco Research Institute came up with smokers' rights groups, where they would get a few genuinely offended smokers who didn't want to give up smoking or be told that it was bad for their health. And what they got was a whole lot of money and a whole lot of promotion and publicity and this kind of thing. Um, so as to, again, make it seem like there are all these poor victims who are out there. And the same thing is done with intelligent design. There are all these poor religious victims, these poor school children who are having bad ideas forced down their unwilling throats. And then, of course, talk about freedom. I talked about that earlier. When in doubt, change the subject, talk about freedom. It does not matter how you do it, just get there, talk about freedom, because it's a very sympathetic subject. If you can make it sound as though your freedom or some innocent person's freedom is being impinged, you can change the subject off of the scientific evidence, and it becomes a completely different emotional topic. And when in doubt, and this was done by tobacco and it is done, being done by the intelligent design lobby, when possible, convince children to be your followers. This is why they handed out cigarettes at playgrounds. And this is also why they want intelligent design and creationism taught in public schools to children. So it's, it's the same strategy. Um, and, of course, they're now trying, uh, you know, religious conservative types are also trying to keep discussions of climate change out of public schools for the same reason. They don't want children to be educated. Hmm. Dear me. Well, <laughs> it's awful. Uh, but to uh, to turn on to some more positive um, ideas uh, before we get to the fun part with your examples of bad design and animals that you say shouldn't exist uh, I want to leave off with your arguments for evolution which you call the greatest indisputably true story ever told 
Okay. Well, yeah, this is where things start getting into the really fun stuff. And I want to start out by saying that much as I make a lot of fun of the human body, which it deserves, um, I do want to point out that the human body is actually wonderful. It's just that it's wonderful in the weird and crazy way that evolved systems are wonderful, rather than being wonderful in the careful mathematical way that designed systems are. There's real beauty and there's real utility, but there is not pre-planned design. Um, but, you know, other wonderful things about evolution include its ability to make predictions so that we can protect public health, as I said, by um, understanding how antibiotics work and how to protect ourselves from um, antibiotic-resistant organisms. Um, there are many other things that by, take, by paying attention to evolutionary theory, we can predict and be better off for it. So I fear having public health officials who don't believe in evolution. And then likewise, ecology. This is where things start getting complicated and beautiful. But ecology is basically evolution in the present. It is the interplay of all the plants and animals, you know, and rainfall and temperature and all of these things that have evolved up into the present together. And we can really only understand ecology if we understand evolution. So again, I fear having environmental policy made by people who don't believe in evolution. Um, there's, as you mentioned before, the so-called problem of unanswered questions. But to a scientist, this is just a wonderful thing, that there are unanswered questions. And many people have the problem with evolution that they feel that they like the idea that God put them on earth for a reason. You even hear Dr. Dembski talking about this. So they say that, you know, if evolution is just all about breeding and dying and so on, well, where do beauty and purpose and all these other really important and meaningful things come in? And, my opinion is that they fit in where we decide to put them. Um, if we human beings think that beauty and meaning and justice and purpose are important, then it's up to us to put them in our lives and into our world rather than waiting for God to hand them to us on a silver platter. I think that this is really important. The way to improve the world is to actually believe that this life matters. And if you want your life to have meaning, there are many ways of leading a meaningful life. And you need to figure out what your meaningful life will look like. Um, there's also just the whole question of the uniqueness of human beings. Um, you know, we love to think, again, that we are the pinnacle of creation and God put us here and all of this kind of thing. I'm afraid it's not true. But that doesn't mean that we're worthless. We're actually a pretty amazing species. We can experience awe. We can experience wonder. But we can also figure things out. And we are responsible for our actions since we can figure things out. So we have to actually take responsibility for our actions. We also should or want to 
appreciate beauty, appreciate wilderness. We can make art. We can make a wonderful civilization. We can do all of these things, but it's up to us. It's up to us to build the best society that we can build. And it is up to us to love each other and to love this planet. So these are the things that I think are very important. And evolution doesn't take that away from us. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. All right. Well, let's get to the examples then. Um, I've written down a bunch that come from your book, but uh, feel free to jump around to your favorites. Um, in your book, uh, After the Testicles, you went to the Human Birth Canal next. Right. The Human Birth Canal. This is one that women can relate to. Basically, it's much too small. This is something that shocks my students when I hold up a pelvis in laboratory, an actual full-up human pelvis, and I look through the birth canal and say, well, there it is. That's where the baby fits through. Um, it's way too small. Women who have given birth know this. And the problem here is basically an engineering problem because simultaneously we walk on two legs, which gives us the ability to have and use hands, but we walk on two legs while being very smart. And these two attributes have opposing requirements. Walking on two legs means that it really helps to have narrow hips. Narrow hips make walking on two legs much easier and much more efficient. If our hips were too wide, we really would not be able to walk very well on two legs. So we've got to have hips that are narrow to a degree, and narrower is kind of better when it comes to efficiency and power in walking on two legs. Um, on the other hand, we are very smart, and being smart requires large brains, and large brains require large heads. And those large heads have to fit through that birth canal, which is in our hips, in our pelvic girdle. And so on the one hand, you have big-headed babies. And on the other hand, you have women who must have hips that are narrow at least to a degree so that they can walk on two legs. And what we have is an uneasy compromise. It's not really a solution. It's a compromise that does not work very well. Um, and it is very hard on some women. Back in the days before modern medicine, lots of women died in childbirth for this very reason, or they died from the complications of childbirth afterwards. Lots of babies died for this reason as well. These days, we do a lot of cesarean sections, which avoid the birth canal altogether. So it really is not a good design, and that's because we were not designed. Basically, enough human babies were born that the species kept going, and enough women died only after they had given birth um, that the species kept going. Um, that doesn't mean it is nice. That does not mean it is easy. It means that it is adequate. And had we been designed, if we had presented this engineering problem to some engineers with, you know, lots of whiteboards and things like this, uh, you could have come up with something like the kangaroo method. Kangaroos are also bipeds. And 
they could have just had us give birth to embryo-like young that kangaroo, the way kangaroos do, and then take that embryo and pop it into a pouch on the outside of the mother's body. In that pouch, there's actually a nipple for nursing. And so these little tiny embryo-like kangaroo babies, known as joeys, just get popped into the mother's pouch, and that's where they continue their development. So there is not the great heaving and straining in kangaroo birth that there is in human birth. Now, another way of going about it, if you had wanted people to have hands, but you didn't really need them to walk on two legs necessarily, is we could have had six appendages um, for to walk on, you know, like a centaur, say, and then two hands and a head. There is no reason from an engineering viewpoint that we couldn't have done that. And at that point, um, hips could be a lot wider. It would not be the same kind of problem. Um, but the thing is, this is so interesting because this is evolutionary history in action. The way that evolution works is that it works with the materials that are on hand. It is simply tweaks on whatever body you've got. We have a tetrapod body. The reason we have a tetrapod body, that means we basically have four appendages and a head. Um, the reason we have a tetrapod body is because the lobe-finned fishes that crawled out of the water that are our ancestors had four limbs. So that tetrapod body map is the body map we've been stuck with ever since. And that is why human women uh, can have two hands and two legs to walk on. And that means that they have to have this narrow pelvis in order to give birth because we also didn't get the kangaroo method of giving birth. Did that make sense? There you go. It yeah. does. All right. How about the human throat? The human throat. This is one that's very relatable because nearly everybody has inhaled cracker crumbs or a gnat or something like that at some point or another. And it's not a nice feeling. What happens there is that basically um, the tubes for breathing through our mouth and our nose, which eventually go down to the trachea, that tube crosses the um, tube for eating our mouth, basically, which then connects to the esophagus, which leads to the stomach. Those two tubes cross. And that is why if you have your mouth full of food and you then inhale, you can wind up inhaling your food and it will then go down your trachea, down your windpipe. And if it's just a matter of inhaling a few cracker crumbs, it's just kind of uncomfortable. But if you inhale something like a sausage or, you know, a piece of only semi-chewed up steak, then it can lodge in your windpipe and get stuck there and it will block breathing. Um, and at that point, people can die of asphyxiation. This is also why people who go unconscious can die by drowning in their own vomit. It's the same thing where it goes down the trachea and then it just gets stuck there and breathing gets blocked. So anyway, um, this is the problem. Basically, we have two tubes. They are not separated. And this is very different. Again, looking at better body parts in other animals, if you look at whales, whales have separate tubes for breathing than for eating. So a whale actually cannot 
choke on its food by inhaling it because the two tubes are completely separate. Well, there you go. Okay. How about um, you mentioned biochemical pathways as it has to do with vitamin C production and, and then, you know, if you don't get vitamin C, the resulting scurvy. Right. Okay. Yes, this is a rather painful one, actually. Okay. Um, scurvy is this nasty disease that we get um, when we don't get enough vitamin C for a long period of time. And it basically creates kind of systemic breakdown in our body because our connective tissue starts breaking down. And um, this calls this causes all kinds of problems. And so this nutritional deficiency problem is something that was seen very often, say, on long sea voyages um, in the British Empire and in the other seafaring nations. If you were at sea for a long time and you were just living on whatever, you know, meat and hardtack and things could be stored in the ship's hold, you weren't getting fresh fruits and vegetables, which is where you get vitamin C from. And the result was that sailors would literally start falling apart. And this is the condition known as scurvy. And um, it also happened, well, for instance, in Quebec uh, and in New England, where I live, because during our long winters, very often there would also not be fresh, be fresh fruits and vegetables. And people could die of scurvy uh, in those climates as well. Um, and as an aside, the Native Americans in New England and in Quebec figured out that um, the aneda tree, um, if boiled, actually result that boiled water had vitamin C in it and you could prevent scurvy this way. So tea was drunk that was made from aneda wood just so that you could wind up not getting scurvy. Um, and this was a useful thing that the Native Americans knew. But in any case, the point is human beings can get scurvy because we need vitamin C. And the reason that we need vitamin C is because our bodies cannot produce it. But the really sad part is that most other animals can produce vitamin C. This is why animals like cats and dogs, although they never eat fresh vegetables or fruits, don't get scurvy. So most animals can produce their own vitamin C. They don't get scurvy because they can make their own vitamin C. We cannot produce our own vitamin C. Again, we have to ask who God likes better. Um, you know, rats can make vitamin C. It's very sad. Um, so there's that. But then evolutionary theory would say we have common ancestors with animals that can make vitamin C. So we should expect to see that we have some of the biochemical pathway that animal, other animals use to make vitamin C. And sure enough, that is what biochemists have found, is that in fact, we have most of that biochemical pathway. We are missing, and this is tragic, the last step. Basically, somewhere in our evolutionary past, we lost the ability to do that last step, so we cannot make vitamin C, which did not much matter to 
our simian ancestors because they were living in places where there were lots of vegetables and fruits all the time. They had an omnivorous diet. And so when that somewhat deleterious mutation took place, it wasn't enough to kill us. So we just kept going. Okay. But then we moved to cold climates where it turned out to matter. Right. So then when you move around, watch out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Quebec. (laughs) I can imagine that that would be a problem if we didn't have the local grocery store. Okay. Um, Do you want to talk about teeth a little bit then? Okay. So talking about teeth, basically we get two sets of teeth in our entire lifetime. We get our baby teeth and then those drop out during our childhood and then we get our adult teeth and we are stuck with those adult teeth for the rest of our lives and everybody has dental problems. Nobody really escapes dental problems. This is why the field of dentistry exists, because everybody gets dental problems. And what we sometimes don't realize, because modern dentistry is so good, is that dental problems can be fatal. Um, if you get an infection in your tooth, if you get a cavity, That is basically a highway for bacteria to enter your body, and you can get infections this way, and once you get an infection one place, it can spread. Um, So dental problems are not just cosmetic or even just painful. Dental problems can be fatal, and yet we only got one set of teeth for our entire adult lives, and we are a long-lived species, or at least potentially a long-lived species. And wouldn't it be nice if we could just regenerate teeth instead? And it turns out that other animals can. For instance, sharks. This is why there are so many fossil shark teeth around. It's because sharks just keep making new teeth and making new teeth and making new teeth and shedding their old teeth. So, you know, think of how easy it would be if, you know, if you had a cavity growing in a tooth, instead of having to get a filling and get or get a root canal or whatever the case may be, you could just say, oh, that teeth, that tooth is going to drop out in a month anyway. Don't worry about it. Um, We did not get that. So again, one may ask who the creator likes better, us or sharks. Okay. Uh, next, let's move to um, one of your favorite animals that, uh, quote unquote, shouldn't exist. And I really loved the mud skipper. Can you tell us about that little guy? Oh, yes. Mud skippers are adorable. And by the way, I should say I'm just going to put in a little bit of information right now. You can see two of my talks on YouTube. One actually talks about bad body parts. That is called unintelligent design. Um, if you Google unintelligent design and Abby Hafer, you should eventually find the studio presentation that I did on that. And likewise, there are two recordings from conferences I've spoken at talking about animals that shouldn't exist. And so there are some YouTube recordings of those as well. And people seem to like them. I can get the links from those and we'll, we'll put the links in the uh, show notes for our listeners. That would be terrific. Yes. Anyway, so mud skippers are these totally adorable little animals. They are basically walking fish. And, you know, the Bible says that walking fish shouldn't exist. And 
of intelligent design proponents, as I have said, have real problems with transitional species. Um, but in fact, mudskippers are these very, very well-evolved fish who live on beaches and in swamps and so on, and they walk around. Um, they are literally walking fish. You can Google lots of pictures of them. You can look at my uh, talks. They walk around on beaches. They live in holes that they dig in the sand. They breed on land. They breathe oxygen in the air. And in fact, their eggs in these little holes that they dig uh, develop in the air. And when there's too little oxygen in the air in their nesting burrow, the male actually walks out of the burrow and kind of gulps down a bunch of fresh air from outside, walks down into the hole, and then um, blurts out this nice oxygen-rich air into the nesting burrow so that these eggs that are developing on land will get the air that the oxygen that they need from the air. These fish are so adapted to life on land that they even climb trees. It is just amazing to see. Um, I totally fell in love with these animals one time when I saw them in an aquarium, and I've loved them ever since. And literally, they can hop out onto low-lying branches or in a mangrove swamp onto things that are sort of roots and sort of branches. And they can hop up onto those and then climb higher and the like. And they have these little, um, very highly evolved fins that are basically suckers on the, um, on their chests that help them stick to these branches as they climb up. And as a result, they can literally climb trees, rather small trees, but nonetheless, they can climb up out of the water which is not what you expect fish to do. Um, <laughs> they, oh, they're, they're fish. If you look at a skeleton, they're fish. You know, they are physiologically fish, um, though they do most of their breathing through their skins, um, and they can also sort of force air into their mouths and then into some side chambers and kind of pressurize the air a little bit, which is kind of like having a simple lung. Um, but they are definitely fish. And the evolutionary standpoint here is that that area where the water is very shallow is actually a good place because you will not be predated on by the large fish that exist in deep water. Um, and likewise, if you have land predators and you're paying attention, you can dive into the water. Um, but the problem can be when the tide comes in that suddenly there may be deep water predators that can come in. And at that point, you need a place to go and you can walk further up onto the beach. But if you can climb up on a tree, for instance, in a mangrove swamp, you can climb up and get out of the reach of the barracudas that may be coming in along with the tide then again, you are safe, and since you don't mind being out in the air for a while, you're doing okay. So it's actually very adaptive. That's fantastic. It's wonderful stuff. And there are many <laughs> different species of mudskippers. There's not just one. There are bunches of them. Oh, that's great. Well, Abby, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. But before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? 
Okay, well, I have a bunch of fun projects coming up. The most exciting one is that I'm actually collaborating on animated videos about evolution with the actor John DeLancey. John DeLancey played Q on Star Trek Next Generation. Oh, yes, I know him. Yes. (laughs) Right. Right. So as I said, he and I are working together to come up with short animated videos that will just, you know, be on YouTube. And we, you know, the idea is to make one to begin with and then hope to make it into a series. And the idea is kind of like what I've said with my other work. I want it to be short, easy to absorb. It's really aimed at, say, roughly 10-year-old kids not even really at the level of education, but at the level of stimulation, at the level of here are these fun things. And, you know, maybe connecting a few dots that are very close together anyway so that people can begin to understand evolution. But, you know, again, emphasizing the fact that this is fun and interesting And with any kind of luck, the kids will be thinking that they are watching fun cartoons, but they are winding up learning things in the process. And more to the point, being exposed to all of this really cool stuff that is really fun and really animating. So as I said, that is one project which is um, in development right now. Now, I have a chapter in a book And the book is called Women Versus Religion, The Case Against Faith and for Freedom. The editor of that book is a woman named Karen Garst, and it is being put out by Pitchstone Publishers. And that should be coming out in 2018. I don't know exactly when. And I am also co-author on a book called Darwin's Apostles. And... That is a book that I'm co-authoring with David Orenstein. And this is really cool. This is really looking at Darwin's fellow scientists who really took it on for themselves, took on the project of having evolution by natural creation accepted by the scientific community at the time, both in England uh, and in North America but then also accepted more generally in England and in North America. And, um, you know, basically there were scientists who realized that this was true, but realized that there would be a lot of religious pushback. And so they went about trying to figure out how they could help get this accepted. And this is why, for instance, um, the famous debate with Bishop Wilberforce was not between Wilberforce and Darwin. They wanted Darwin to be allowed to be himself. And he was kind of reclusive and so on, but also to kind of be the, the, the man behind the idea rather than the people who were in the arena fighting. And so that's why those famous debates then are between Huxley and Wilberforce. Huxley took it on himself to uh, be, as he put it, Darwin's bulldog, the one who would actually go out into the public arena and make those arguments. Uh, But Huxley was only one of a number of people who thought that this was such an important idea that 
it really needed to be accepted, but that there were going to be very strong factors against its being accepted. So anyway, that's the other book that I'm working on. Uh, that's being published by Humanist Press, and that should probably be coming out in 2018 as well, but we're not quite sure when. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, again, let me thank you for being on the show today. I really had fun. And uh, perhaps you can come back with one of your next books. I would be delighted. Thank you very, very much. Okay. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Abby Hafer about her book, The Not-So-Intelligent Designer, Why Evolution Explains the Human Body and Intelligent Design Does Not. You can see Dr. Hafer talk more about intelligent design as well as animals that an intelligent designer wouldn't create on YouTube, and I'll make sure we include some links in the show notes and in the blog post. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye. Until my next conversation about new books in secularism.